Welcome to Bethany. We are finishing out our series of 1 Timothy this morning, and to begin, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Yes, 1 Chronicles chapter 29 reads like this. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antinomy, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I've provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold and of gold and uh, of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Verse 6, Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents, 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 8,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David, the king, also rejoiced greatly. Verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, 
I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. May God bless the reading of his word. It's been said that money is the root of all evil. If you were here when Pastor Joe preached a few weeks ago, he read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, in which the Apostle Paul warns Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's true. The paper bills and copper coins and gold doubloons and buried treasure have a mystifying allure, don't they? They have a special ability, an ability to corrode our priorities, plunge the human heart into all sorts of darkness. Without Christ, riches can easily become an end in and of themselves, leading us to serve ourselves and neglect and think less of others. They could take us down a path of ruin and destruction. But here in First Chronicles, we see what happens when finances and faith collide. When finances and faith collide, our treasure, it undergoes a transformation. It ceases to become an object of worship, and it actually becomes an element of of worship. As King David was gathering everything that was needed for his son Solomon to build this glorious temple for the Lord, both he and all the people, they, they loosed their grip on their precious possessions. They exchanged their desires to grab up and hold on to treasure for themselves, and they offered it in worship to God. Did you catch verse 9? Verse 9, the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. They, they gave willingly, and not only did they give willingly, they're rejoicing over it. Why would anyone do this? It's because of their faith. It's because they recognized who God was and believed that he was responsible, not only for everything that they had, but for who they were, their own identity. They were a people, the people of God. They were a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All that they were, all that they had, all that they did was to point to just how beautiful and how powerful and how wise and how good and how awesome he is. So in praise and worship to him, they gladly give their treasure, emptying out their pockets to serve and worship him. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours, yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O oh God, and praise your glorious name. What an, what an awesome thing that must have been to see. As we bring our study in 1 Timothy to a close, we see Paul zeroing in on this collision between faith and finances that needs to take place 
in our hearts. And it's fitting that he should end with this. And, and I think that's because perhaps more than anything else, money has a way of stealing our affections and taking seat on the throne of our hearts. It, it becomes something that we're tempted to worship in and of itself rather than as a tool or a means to worship. Whereas Christians, they're to be fighting the good fight, pursuing godliness, God-centeredness, and living only for his glory, there is a clear and present danger that all of us face in recentering our focus and our worship on what we can grab up, what we can hold on to for ourselves. There's a great temptation there. There's a great danger there. And that's why I believe Paul wants Timothy to speak directly to those who are rich. Now, you might be watching this, sitting back and thinking, well, okay, I think I can switch this one off now because that doesn't include me. I'm definitely not rich. I can't put myself into that category. I guess I can check out on this one. Well, not too fast. Because being rich doesn't necessarily mean that you live on the, in the house on the hill with that five-car garage and, and, and that infinity pool that looks out over everything else. And that indoor half court, right? It doesn't mean that you have all of those things. No, when Paul is talking about being rich here, he's talking about those who, after they've paid for food, after they've uh, uh, purchased clothing, uh, they, they put a roof over their heads, after they've taken care of all their essential expenses just for life, they have some money left over. There's something left. He's talking about those who have extra money that they, they have just sitting around that they can pick and choose what they want to use it on. It, it's discretionary money here. And if that's who Paul is talking about when he says the rich, then he's probably talking about most of us. Of course, there are some who have more riches than others, right? Some of us have a lot more than others. Riches are one of the ways that God blesses his people, but it's not the only way that God blesses people, and not everyone is blessed in that way, right? And if you find yourself with less extra money than someone next door, or some other people, that doesn't mean that somehow you are less blessed by God, or less spiritual, or even have less faith than them. God doesn't guarantee material wealth, does he? He doesn't guarantee it. Some pastors preach that way, but it's just not true. It's not a matter of having the right amount of faith, or praying hard enough, or in the right way, saying this phrase or that phrase. It's not a matter of, as uh, someone I once knew, they, they wrote a check to themselves, a check to themselves for a million dollars, and they put it in a nice frame, they hung it up in their house, so that every morning they, they woke up, they would see this thing, every night when they would go to bed, they'd see this thing, and they would focus on it, and they would envision it, and the, the, the hope was that eventually, somehow, the the finances or their bank account's going to fund and they're going to be able to take that check out of the frame and go cash it to themselves. It doesn't work like that. 
1 Samuel 2.7 says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. This is God's doing. It's God's doing. Faith in God recognizes that every good and perfect gift, even the money that we have in our wallets and bank accounts, that comes from God. He's the one responsible for putting it, it, it there, whatever is there. When, it, when the, that reality, when that reality collides with the actual money that we have, well, it alters our attitudes, doesn't it? And it alters our actions. What happens when faith and finances collide? three things I want to point out that Paul zeroes in on here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. First thing is this, when faith and finances collide, arrogance is destroyed. It's destroyed. Paul writes in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. The Greek word here, it means to think lofty of oneself or to have a high opinion of oneself. And we see that happening all the time, don't we? People who have money, many of them do sit up on their hilltop mansions or they slide around in their overpriced wagons or they convince themselves that they're somehow a cut above the rest, the rest who don't have as much as they do. The more money they have, the more tempted they are to look down on others. And the reality is, isn't it? Humility and money are not things that often go hand in hand. We're tempted when we have money, we're tempted to think that we're somehow on a different level than other people. Maybe we've worked harder. Maybe we've made better choices in life. Or maybe we feel like we're just more deserving than those less significant people out there. One pastor wrote this, the temptation is to view others as mere servants since wealthy people tend to hire others to do everything for them. Proverbs 28, 11 tells us this, a rich man is wise in his own eyes. Wise in his own eyes. And of course, there are some people who are, are wiser with money than others, Right? Some people that are wiser. Some people have uh, just a knack for choosing the right type of investments. Others are, are just dedicated in the way that they save money. They scrimp, they save, their bank accounts accumulate. Still others, because of their hard work and their intelligence, they get very good jobs where they're making very, very good money. What I don't understand is those people who make those videos and they put them up on YouTube and somehow they get a cult following and now they're making buku bucks on YouTube. Really? Have you seen some of these videos? They're ridiculous sometimes. I don't understand that. But, you know, the thing is, when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter so much how we get our wealth. Riches should never give us reason for arrogance because it all comes from God. It all comes from God. He makes rich and he makes poor. Even if you've worked tirelessly for years to build up what you have, your ability to work in the first place and any intelligence, muscle, 
any, any, any skill, natural ability that you have, all of it is from God. It's not from you. When faith and finances collide, our reasons for arrogance disappear. Arrogance is destroyed. Secondly, when faith and finances collide, hope, real hope, true hope is discovered. Really, any hope that, that we thought we had in, in finances, that just begins to crumble. It begins to fall apart, and the source of true hope is found. Verse 17 again, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The reality is, money in the bank doesn't equal security. Don't count on it. Don't hope on it. Because there may come a day when it just disappears. Several years ago, not long after my wife and I were first married, we were looking at our bank accounts and realizing we don't have a lot of money. And we were looking at the real estate market and realizing that prices just keep going up and up and up and up and up. And we began thinking, maybe, what are we going to do here? Maybe we just need to bite the bullet and, and invest. We talked to some people, and they said, yeah, you know what? You just need to get your foot in the door, get something small. It doesn't really matter what it is. Just get something small, get what you can, and then improve it. Hopefully, you can make it better. And as the market continues to go up, maybe in a couple of years, you could flip it and then buy something that is a bit more meets your needs. Well, we did that. That was 2007. You know what happened in 2008. Everything fell apart. And we found ourselves not only tapped out, but trapped. And here we were, stuck in this tiny, I think it was 800, 900 square feet, one-bedroom place. Like so many other people, it took us years and years to recover and to get out of there. Proverbs 23.5 says, Don't weary yourself trying to get rich. Why waste your time? For riches can disappear as though they had wings. They just fly away. When faith and finances collide, we discover that hope isn't found in the wealth that we can store up for ourselves. It's not found in that. Remember the parable Jesus gave in Luke chapter 12. This man had a bumper crop built bigger barns, had more than enough, was totally comfortable that he could live the good life now. Let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry. We've finally made it. Our ship has come in. Little did he know that God would say, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Those who have placed their trust in Christ know better than to trust in material wealth. They know better than that. The only real and sure hope is in God. Paul says he's the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's something here that I think is important for us to notice as Christians. Notice that hoping in God, it doesn't mean taking a vow of poverty, 
doesn't mean necessarily taking a vow of poverty. The Christian doesn't say, you see, this is why we can't have nice things because our hope is in God and God wants us to be poor. No, trusting in God doesn't mean that you're going to be financially rich, but neither does it mean that you're going to be poor. God richly provides everything to enjoy, Paul writes. No one has more resources than God. Are you thinking of Psalm chapter 50? That's where we're going. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10, God tells us, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Psalm 50 is telling us everything belongs to God. Everything is his, and he distributes it as he pleases. And the things that he's given, we're meant to enjoy. You and I are meant to enjoy. In fact, no one should enjoy things quite as much as Christians. Because when food tastes delicious... And, and you look out at the, the sun settling down into the horizon and you see the splashes of brilliant color filling the sky or you marvel at the miracle of a newborn baby. We know where all the credit goes for those things, don't we? It all goes to God. We know that all these things, they're, they're awesome and beautiful displays of God's goodness. I have a friend who, uh, like me, loves to go to the L.A. auto show. In fact, he, he enjoys it a lot more even than I do. And as I was talking to him about it, it for the first time, I was you know, telling him, kind of admitting, yeah, I, I love going there too. And I, and I was kind of talking about it as if it was kind of a guilty pleasure. And before I could kind of get through what I was talking about, he says, no, 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 I go to worship. I said, worship, what are you talking about? Before I could uh, cut him off and, 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 and set him straight, he told me that when he sits down in, in these incredible vehicles and touches all the different textures and looks at all the different sights and sees what a work of art these things are and just a magnificent accomplishment of engineering, he can't help but praise God for how creative and how intelligent, how wonderful he's made human beings, that they're able to come up with something like this. It leads them to worship. That people can create vehicles so complex and beautiful was reason for him to worship God. And because of that, I think he's enjoying those things more than anyone else at that show. Because he knows what they really point to. Early in our study of 1 Timothy, we saw that there were people in the church who were saying things like food and marriage were things that you should say no to. You, sh you, sh you shouldn't enjoy anything. They were probably thinking that these things were earthly pleasures that were going to take our eyes off of what really mattered or what was spiritual, and they distract us. Maybe even they keep us from things that really matter. But Paul says, no way. No way. Christians can receive them, not only receive them, but enjoy them with thankful hearts because they know who created them and who gave them. Remember 1 Timothy 4.4? 4? Everything created by God is good. 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. These things are good. God made them good in our enjoyment of them. That's good also, so long as we enjoy them in, in line with God's will. And they lead us to thank and praise him for them. What good things has God given you to enjoy? I know that might be a hard, hard thing for you to consider right now, especially in a season where you're experiencing so many different things taken away. As we were uh, sharing some things we were thankful for just this past Thanksgiving with my family, I, I found myself just kind of feeling like I don't want to share what I'm thankful for because there's so many things that I've lost here that I just, it's hard. Maybe hard to think of the things that we're thankful for. But the reality is, even during this season, this challenging, this difficult season, that just seems like it keeps going on and on and on, we find ourselves in, even in the midst of that, we are people who are living in a world where there is more to enjoy and thank God for than perhaps any other time in history. And those who, whose hope is in Jesus, they know that even the, the little that they have is still far more than they deserve. It's more than I deserve. God's been good. He's been good. Yet don't hope in riches. Hope in God who owns all things, who controls all things, and who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. When faith and finances collide, arrogance is destroyed. Hope, real hope, true hope is discovered. Finally, temporal treasure is invested in eternity. Look at verse 18. What are the rich, those who have excess, some money left over? Uh, what are they supposed to do with their money? Paul says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He says, tell people who have money left over to do good. Being rich is not about having all of this extra money to spend our time sitting back by the pool, soaking up the rays, watching the clouds roll by, sipping iced tea. It's not an excuse to eat, drink, and be merry while other people are caring for the church or out there making disciples and seeking first the kingdom of God. When Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, he wasn't implying that once all those things are added to you, well, now you can check out. Well, seek the kingdom of God so you can get what you want and then you're good for a little while. Seeking the kingdom of God was never meant to be a means of financial gain. Remember Paul said that earlier on? He said godliness is, they're, they're thinking that godliness is a means of personal gain. Paul says, no, no. We saw that in 1 Timothy 6.5. Jesus is saying, focus on doing the things God wants you to do and he'll take care of your needs. Don't focus on getting rich. So, say you've got what you need. 
say you've already have, you already have more than enough. You don't have to worry about where your next meal is going to come from or whether or not if you tear your jeans, if you're going to be able to go buy another pair of jeans or whether or not you can pay the rent or your mortgage next month. Great. If that's you, great. God has already provided. Now you can spend less time trying to make enough money to just get by and more time getting out there and seeking first the kingdom of God. Not only does Paul say to tell the rich people to do good, he says they're to be generous. They're to be ready to share as well. Money is just really, when it comes down to it, it's just like any other of the gifts that God gives his people. Some are given gifts of teaching. Some have incredible music ability. Some are given the gift of wisdom. Some the gift of helps. All these different gifts. And all of these gifts God gives for the good, for the building up of his church. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Financial resources are a gift as well. Just like those gifts, when faith and finances collide, when we apply our faith to our bank accounts, to our pocketbooks, we begin to realize that, and we realize that the extra money that we have isn't there for us just to stockpile and save up for a rainy day, save up for ourselves. We are to use it, just like those other gifts. Use it to generously bless others in need. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to give it all away. It doesn't mean that you share all that you have until everyone has the same amount. Paul's not advocating socialism here. He's calling on those who have more to use what God has given them for God's purposes. This was God's money to begin with. Remember what the Israelites said? This is one of the ways that people use their gifts for the glory of God and the good of God. Of his people. And this is where I just have to say that I am amazed at how people here at Bethany are generous towards others. It is incredible. They could easily buy themselves fancier cars, bigger houses. They could spend their money on lavish vacations or opulent living. But what do they do? They look for the needs of others. They're actually looking for others who have needs, and then they use their wealth to meet them. It's just mind-blowing. It's incredible. It's so counterintuitive to the way people operate in our world today. I praise God for those of you who have financial resources. You have that gift, and you use it graciously for the glory of God and the good of his people. Now, some have a lot, and some give a lot. Some have a little and they give what they can. When it comes down to it, it's not the amount that really matters here. What matters is that because of your faith, you have generously offered your resources for God's purposes, seeking first his kingdom. Those who have money and hope in God, they can do this. They can do it because they aren't trusting in their wealth. That's not where their hope is. They don't have to hold on to every last dime to make them feel secure. Their security is in God. 
And that actually brings us to verse 19 here. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Then it says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When faith and finances collide, temporal treasure is invested in eternity. Doing good, being generous, sharing with others. It's not about being reckless. It's not about being foolish with your money. It's not about just throwing it away and not giving a care to the future. No, those who have faith in Christ, they know that money given for God's purposes, it's not just money well spent. It's money well invested well invested. That's because those who invest in God's kingdom are exchanging what they cannot keep for something that can never be lost. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19? Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Paul's talking about here. Melissa and I, we thought we were making a good investment when we bought that condo. Everyone told us we couldn't go wrong. Guess what? It went wrong. It went horribly wrong. And there we were, stuck in this little cracker box, staring at each other for years. Those who have faith in Christ, they know that there is a type of investment that is infinitely safer and yields far, far better returns. It's an investment in God's eternal kingdom. It's the only really true, safe investment strategy. The only one. Notice the last phrase that Paul writes here. Say, uh, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you remember back to last week how believers were to fight the good fight and take hold of that eternal life to which they have been called? We noted that taking hold of that eternal life, it doesn't mean somehow gaining salvation. Now that we've trusted Christ, now you have to somehow find it, gain it. No, it wasn't about that. It was about taking hold of it. It was about owning it. It was about making it your own, living it out, embracing your identity, your citizenship, your secure future that you have in heaven and actually living it out in the here and now. That's what those who use their extra money for God's kingdom, his church, his people, that's exactly what they're doing. When you allow your faith in Christ to impact the way that you view and use your money, you're taking hold of that which is truly life. You're living out the reality of your salvation in the here and now. You're, you know that you've got an eternity of the good life ahead of you. So you gladly loosen your grip on the resources you now have so God's people might be blessed and more people might be added to that number. God is honored by that. He gets glory from that. Good is brought to his people through that. It's a wonderful thing, an eternal investment. Paul concludes his letter to Timothy by reminding him in verse 20 
Oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be to you. We've said this a lot through our study of 1 Timothy. We'll say it one last time. Ideas matter. Ideas, they either lead us toward or further away from our maker. So we must guard and hold on to these ideas. Guard and hold on to God's truth, the truth that he's revealed to us. We must fight the good fight of faith and strive to keep our eyes fixed on God. He's the one who needs to sit on the throne of our hearts. He needs to be the one that we live for and the one that we worship. So we need to make sure that we keep things like money and personal gain in their proper place. The question for us this morning is, what place does money have in our lives? Is financial gain fighting for the affections of our hearts? How do you know? There's a few good questions you can ask yourself. Number one, do thoughts of money consume your day? Two, does the financial success of others make me jealous? Do I define my success by what I have rather than who I am in Christ? Is my family neglected in my pursuit of stuff? Am I able to close my eyes to the genuine need of others around me? Do I live with a paralyzing fear of losing the money that I have? Am I prepared to borrow myself into bondage? Finally, does God receive my leftovers rather than my first fruits? We need our faith and our finances to collide, don't we? When that happens, our reasons for arrogance, they disappear. When that happens, we find the only real and true hope that there is in life. It's not money. It's God. And when that happens, when faith and finances collide, we take what is temporal and we invest it in what is eternal. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you and we recognize that this has been a challenging season. It continues to be a challenging season. This is a season, Lord, where we have had things taken away. We are threatened on so many different levels, Lord. Evidence of it is when we go to the, the store and we see shopping shelves just completely decimated because people are in a panic and they're trying to grab up, store up, so that they can hold up and weather the storm. Lord, thank you that our hope is in you. It's not in material possessions. It's not in money. It's not in how well we've prepared 
for whatever comes our way, Lord, it's in you. Lord, help us to trust you. And as we trust you with what you've given us, Lord, help us not to be arrogant, but recognize that it actually does come from you. Give us a spirit of humility. And Lord, would you also help us to be generous? Help us to live not, not with the mindset that we need to gain up and grab up for ourselves so that we can have the most comfortable life right here, right now, possible, Lord. But help us to think in terms of eternity. Help us to act like we know that we have a place that is prepared for us, that we have a future and a hope, that we have an inheritance from you to look forward to, Lord. And as we do that, Lord, may we give generously for your kingdom. Lord, help us. Help us to trust you enough that we make eternal investments. Lord, we long to see people on the other side. We didn't expect we're going to be there. We find out that some contribution that we made made a difference and it brought the gospel to them and they are now spending eternity with us in paradise because of that, Lord. That's an eternal investment. That's something that really matters. That's something we long for. Lord, help us to use our money, the money that you've given us for your glory and the good of others. We love you. Thank you for this time we've had in your word and for this letter, this letter of 1 Timothy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.